live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 Minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Good evening, Rabbi Hirsch, and welcome back after a week's break. The reason we took a week's break is because this is a very close two-part series, and it's the sort of series that you can't really hear one without the other, so we're going to be releasing both in one week. And this one is a very much anticipated series. It's a far broader look at history, and it's talking about the Jews at Mount Sinai almost three and a half thousand years ago, and it's maybe the yep. podcast we should have started this whole series with. But um, No, you have to get there in stages. Right. So it is a major topic, the idea of the Torah having been given on Mount Sinai, because it's not just a theoretical historical question. It's much more than that. It impacts on my life. You know, people are often nervous when dealing with this issue because it sounds like an all-or-nothing scenario. If the Torah was given on Mount Sinai 3,335 years ago, then as of about 50 minutes from now, we've all got to be fully observant, to which really the response is that a person is required to take the theory of Judaism's truth and bring it into practice. What Judaism asks of an individual is to grow. The rate of growth, like the incline of any hill or mountain, will depend. And as long as a person is moving forward, genuinely building their knowledge and themselves, then what they are doing is being observant of Torah. Good job not scaring anyone off. Okay, so what is the claim? Judaism believes that the Torah came about when a nation came out of slavery in Egypt miraculously. They came to a mountain or a hill and at that mountain heard God speak and then accepted the Chumash, the Bible, which was initiated through the Ten Commandments. And that means that there is a script to living life. We're not here to guess our own way as to what is right and wrong. And it's a claim that only allows for two answers. It is true or it is false, although we'll have to come back to why there can't be a partial truth, the sort of wishy-washy stuff that people prefer. It's important to realise, as we said at the introduction to Christianity, no two religions who believe in a truth can both be simultaneously true. If Christianity is, then Judaism isn't. If Islam is, then Buddhism isn't. And the problem often is, unfortunately and annoyingly, that people make sweeping general statements and they don't stand scrutiny. You know, well, plenty of religions have that. Really? Which ones? What exactly do they claim? How can two versions of contradictory truth both be true? It's amateurs playing at philosophy and history without understanding the basic principles of either. So I'm going to be asking you questions on this episode, Robert Hirsch, mostly to open up conversation. Basically, what you're saying is that we alone, out of the billions of people on this planet in, in our history, are in possession of the truth. Yes, and by we alone, I mean only those within Judaism who subscribe to this belief. If you're born Jewish and halachically you're a Jew, that's the least of your journey. The main thing is, do you believe? 
and therefore, you know, potentially only 3 million out of the 14 million Jews are included. So, you know, out of 8 billion people on this planet, something like 0.0005% have the truth. Yes. Right. Just a disclaimer that many people do act morally nonetheless. Yes. And there may be many who are searching for truth, many who believe that there is a truth. But what we are dealing with here is how many accept the Chumash as true and the only truth. And if that's the claim and the challenge, I guess the question is, to what extent is it rational to believe in it? To what extent is it rational to even start thinking along those lines about events which are almost unbelievable? Now, it is equally important to point out that our claim that sort of 3,350 years ago, God spoke to us, is not totally in a void, by which I mean, we know that 2,000 years ago, for sure, Jews were observing all of Torah, Shabbos, Kashra's temple service, that, you know, there's multiple evidence, the, the Greeks, the Romans, Dead Sea Scrolls, no one disputes that. And therefore, in many ways, this turns the question on its head. Because the question now is, not did God speak to us, the question would be, if God didn't speak to us 3,300 years ago, how did the religion come into being? How did an entire nation come to believe and practice all the rules, hundreds of them? Who sold it to them? When? How? And you've only got 1,335 years of blanks from sort of, you know, 1 BCE to 1300 BCE. And for most of that period, we have Tanakh, as a timeline. But for sure, 2,000 years ago, this religion is fully established, which is important to realize. Now, if it didn't take place, this uh, encounter on Mount Sinai, then the book, this Bible, which is claimed to have been written at the time, is a lie. It's a fake, a fraud. Or God did speak, and we're bound by that truth. The religion can't be half true. It can't be that God half appeared on Mount Sinai. You know, he never finished any of his sentences. He either spoke to the Jews and said, I am your Lord, or he did not. Yeah, but maybe it was in stages. Maybe Moses started it, and then I know Elio added it, and Yeshai completed it over the ages, similar to how you described Christianity. Okay, we'll have to come back to this scenario. It's an important point next week. But we will actually find out that this has got more drawbacks rather than less. I mean, of course, there are potentially bits of the book that could have been added on later. I am talking here about the central claim that the event of the Ten Commandments and Sinai really did happen. Now, the assumption that it never happened, that the whole thing is fiction, is current thinking amongst Bible scholarship in virtually every university in the Western world. This scroll which you revere as the word of God, is ma made up. It's, it's man-made. It might be great, might be cute, might be moral, might even be compelling, but it didn't come from God. And this lie called the Bible would join the other sort of 4,000 invented religions. Why would people buy into a new religion and if once dismissing ours as false? Well, I mean, there are many reasons, often sudden change, natural disasters, superstition, although it's important to realize that any new religion, the claim has to have happened at one of two junctures in time. 
In other words, this conspiracy to defraud the Jews happens in either what's called present theory or past theory. Present theory means Moses tells the Jews, we all heard God speak yesterday. Past theory means Fred tells the Jews that 500 years ago, your ancestors heard God speak. Right. Moses theory, Fred theory. Now, actually, universities don't teach the Moses scenario, but we will explore it nonetheless. One thing I'd like to understand just before we start, you're going to try and prove that Torah came from Sinai. Yep. But belief in Sinai is one of the 13 principles of faith, which I think we all know. But if you can prove it without a shadow of a doubt, then why is it called faith? An article of faith. Okay, so that sounds like a contradiction in terms. Proving something that you're required to accept on faith. It's a very important question. But in Judaism, we don't have the concept of blind faith. Believing where it makes no sense. Believing against all logic. Believing that three is one. What does the, mean? the word emunah doesn't mean faith. It means to be faithful. It means faith in something that is reasonable. Believing in something in which beyond any reasonable doubt, there should be belief. So, of course, you know, proving that Torah was given on Mount Sinai is not proof in the scientific sense of the word, because if there was a laboratory test that could be conducted to prove once and for all, using our five senses and the physical world around us, whether the Torah was given on Mount Sinai or not, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Somebody would have conducted that test long ago, and that would be the end of it. It does remain a tenant of faith, yet there is proof, because the proof that we are looking for is the proof that we accept in life, every one of us, ongoing. Whenever we need to make decisions in life about things that we do not have independent skills or knowledge about. I quote from the legal requirements in this country used to imprison people potentially for life. Beyond reasonable doubt is the highest standard of proof used in criminal cases. It requires that the prosecution prove to the extent that there is no reasonable doubt in the mind of a reasonable person that the defendant committed the crime charged. And that's what historians do by definition. I mean, none of them were there when the events happened. You know, take another example. A person goes to the doctor they get a checkup, and then doctor scrawls something in Latin on a piece of paper. They take this incomprehensible piece of paper to the chemist, who gives them some white little things in a plastic box. You have no idea what specifically you've been diagnosed with necessarily, and you've definitely got no idea how the remedy works, but you are unlikely to say, you know something, I think before I take these things, I'm going to need a degree in chemistry and then spend the next three years going to college before you take your medicine, right? No one does that. Nor are you likely to go to a car mechanic and when they say, oh gosh, that knocking noise, yeah, that's the, you know, that's the Udrama flip. Whoa, <laughs> and it's a foreign part. They're 250 pounds each. And you've got no idea if you've got two Udrama flips in your car or one or possibly none at all. You've got no independent knowledge here. Yet you will allow an expert to tell you 
I mean, yes, before taking the advice of this so-called expert, you will ask friends or family if they were satisfied when they went to this person. You will probably inquire whether this person has a proven track record, how long they've been in business for. You will make inquiries, but bottom line, you are relying on recommendation, whether it's of others or the individual concerned, because your level of independent knowledge in this area is insufficient. And in most areas of life, including life-changing advice, be it medical, legal, or, you know, relying on who my mother is, we use beyond reasonable doubt. We don't require DNA swabs from our parents, even though we could, in that case, actually find out. Well, the examples you gave, I guess we, we don't really have a choice unless you want to drive around a broken car That's or right. be ill. That's right. Exactly the same. And therefore... What is necessary to make a valid claim to this argument is a beyond reasonable doubt argument that the Torah was actually communicated to the Jewish people on Mount Sinai, and those that deny this truth will try and do the same, except, as we will see next week, they fail miserably. So, let's now move on to the first of the two possible scenarios, the Moses scenario present theory. If it took place at the time, if Moses invented this religion, it means he comes to a people, he gives them a book of their history that they know is false, and he tells them, remember guys, we came out of Egypt seven weeks ago, and you know, when the Nile turned to blood, and you remember the sea split, and you remember all the firstborn Egyptians died in about 30 seconds, and they would say, Moses, you know, stop smoking that stuff. In other words, he is going to try and sell a story to an entire group of people that they know is fiction. None of it ever happened, and they know it never happened. Why would they accept it into their personal lives? Well, maybe Moses actually got them out of Egypt, and they were very grateful to him. So they couldn't really right. say, stop smoking that stuff. Okay, right. So in other words, they went along with his mushagast out of gratitude. Maybe. Yeah, maybe they were slaves, maybe they were lower-class citizens, and he got them out and established them as a nation. So they had tremendous gratitude, understandably. So they said to each other, you know, let this guy have his stuff. He wants to write a book about it, which we know isn't true. Just humour him. That's a plausible scenario, right? Especially if this new invented book with lots of untrue stories in it made them appear to be a great nation. They would have accepted it. Except, he doesn't just write a story. He tells them about 613 commandments, not just the 10. And he adds, you know, oh yeah, there is this thing I might not have mentioned to the men before. You should really have it done when you're eight days old. But if you didn't, well, we've got a team of experts on hand and here's a rubber duck you can bite on while it's <laughs> happening. And it'll be over in a couple of seconds or not. It's fine. He's not writing stories. This isn't Greek legends or Roman mythology. This is very demanding. He's presenting them with a list of things they have to do 24-7. It's not a book of history. And to sell that, just because I'm grateful, just because I'm grateful, I'm going to allow myself to be stoned to death if I desecrate Shabbos by extricating peanut shells from peanuts. Right? I'm going to get killed for it. Or, or for cursing someone even after they're dead. I'm going to get whipped in public for planting my grapes too close to my olives in my own field. No one's going to sign away their entire life out of gratitude. You know, theories of history have to conform to patterns of behaviour. 
may be extreme patterns of behavior, but logical ones, logical scenarios. There has to be a logical or historical basis. And once again, that's where these amateurs get it wrong. You know, maybe Moses and maybe and maybe, maybe, or maybe there are fairies and pygmies and, and aliens and unicorns, maybe. Whereas here, the extent of these new doctrines make life unlivable. It involves governance 24-7, no privacy, total indoctrination, intrusion into my economic life, my bedroom. It makes George Orwell's 1984 seem tame. Right. So, as mentioned previously, Christianity boils down to one thing. You have to have faith at some stage in your life and then you're done. Judaism is from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep. It's weekday and Saturday. It includes lots of things that are going to be a real struggle. And you have to ask what's in it for the people to accept it. It's not something you can easily sell. Whereas paganism is an easy sell. And Christianity, once Paul got in on the act, you know, based on our podcasts on Christianity, it also becomes easy to sell. They scrapped most of the Bible precisely because you can't sell this stuff to the Gentiles. It's too difficult. Selling Judaism is a very different proposition. And that's one of the major problems with these, you know, these websites with, with questions from skeptics. They make claims based on other religions. Well, religion X managed to sell their truth, so maybe Judaism did too. But these pathetic amateurs have no background in constructing historical philosophical arguments. You're, you're on fire today, Rabbi Hirsch. I'm just getting started. <laughs> I will present three more problems with the Moses claim. What is often unappreciated is how radical Torah is. It involves acceptance of ideas which were at complete odds with every other known theology or belief of 3,300 years ago. A classically, obviously, monotheism totally unheard of, even 2,300 years ago. These are insane ideas in the ancient world. So, you know, you're creating a fake book. Why would you create it to be out of sync with everybody else so that all of your new religion are all weirdos? guess you can even ask how would Moses even think of these ideas Correct. if they were never accepted at that time. Never known about and wouldn't be for the next 500 to 1,000 years. And this dimension is not adequately appreciated. How audacious these ideas in the Torah would have been back then, especially as a forgery. The concept, for instance, of free will, of equal justice for the king and the commoner 3,000 years ago, the Chumash is explosive, explosive enough that the material went on to affect how the whole world thinks. And there is a major corollary to this question, which also needs to be thought through. You have just presented the people with a new religion that all of us know is fake. We know we weren't rescued from Egypt last week by miraculous plagues, in which case, why make 613 commandments? What for? Maybe it's that people feel part of, a, of an exclusive club. It's just us. We're elite. Yeah. What does 613 fake commandments accomplish that 350 fake commandments couldn't have? Why lie to such a degree and create a religion which almost no one logically 
could be expected to live up to. He's killing his own invented religion. It's never going to last. You know, Shabbos, Kashrus, festivals, I get all of that. The red heifer, of which there isn't a single one, by the way, in the world today that we know of, not one. Chalitza, right? If your husband dies, we would like you to spit at your brother-in-law in Bezdin. Wow, that's meaningful. You know, what possible logic would compel a, a liar to create 613 inventions, many of them being weird, when 300 mitzvahs would have stood out immediately? And you risk losing everything. You push this lie too far, they will walk. In, in philosophical terms, the question now becomes not, did God write it? The question is, how could man have ever written it, given the unique level of original moral thought? Do you know, Torah, also it's unappreciated, this idea, Torah doesn't rely on any other literature, not by comparison or exclusion or addition. It stands alone. And by the way, I'm not even halfway through pulling this thing apart. <laughs> okay, so next problem. He, Moses, is lying, and we know that. That's what it is. There's got to be motivation for him to do this. It could be anything. It could be power, money, fame. Yeah, yeah, any one of those. Except Judaism is the worst religion for a dictator. There is no position in Judaism which gives you real authority. The Sanhedrin is dependent on the king. The king is dependent on the Novi. The Novi has no judicial power at all. It's a religious democracy. 3,000 years ago. So he made up a religion and forgot to keep the best part for himself. You know, what is the, 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 the thinking that he would share power? Although he's one of the only ones, if not the only one, who spoke to God. Yeah, but that doesn't give him anything. Look at the narrative in the Bible over the next 40 years. They want to stone him. They want to replace him. What right. did he get out of it? It didn't actually right? equate into power, yeah. Which means the religion claim makes no sense because I know it's a lie. The book itself makes no sense because it's radical nonsense and unnecessary. And the leader makes no sense because he's an idiot who forgot to give himself power or glory. And this is what you want me to believe in. But I haven't come to the biggest challenge, which differentiates Judaism from every other religion in existence, every other, East, West, ancient, current, in one major respect. There is no other world religion that makes a claim of mass revelation. The claim that we make that at Mount Sinai, the Jewish nation, numbering in the millions, were all there and all experienced revelation and all lived to tell the tale. No other religion in the history of mankind has ever made that claim. By the way, the claim is such a chutzpah, it's so audacious, even if it's a lie, just the claim itself of mass revelation is chutzpah. If it's a lie, this mass revelation, you just got away with it. How can you now predict that no one else will? Why wouldn't other people get away with it? Yet in the Torah it says no one else will do this. Somehow, for some reason, in the intervening 3,000 years, no one else has made this claim. And that is worth thinking about. If it's a lie, how did we control history? All other religions have a maximum of two people who heard God who, who survived. 
Because if you're lying, the more people you involve in your conspiracy, the more likely you are to get caught out. So you keep the numbers to one or two. And, and this is critically important, this mass revelation idea is so handy, is so important, that both Islam and Christianity base their whole religion on it. Yeah, sure, they go on to amend details, and, and both of them say that a new choice and a new nation emerged. But the, that original claim of mass revelation, the Old Testament, three billion people believe in it. Why? Because Christianity and Islam now have a neatly packaged religion which they can amend, but there's something to start with. The foundations are so solid that it's brilliant. It's so convenient. And the alternative to a neatly packaged religion, which all other religions have to unfortunately adopt, is that I say to you as follows. Last night, God appeared to me and said to me, my son, I am now showing you the way. This is the set of instructions as to how you should live your life, which is, by the way, how what Mormon religion is. John Smith said, I was up a mountain and the angel Mormoni appeared to me and showed me golden tablets. Anybody else there? No. Got the golden tablets? No. And now I want you all to believe in it. How many of you would go along with that when there's no mass revelation? The masses do believe in lies and fraudsters, even today. All the time. People are gullible. I mean, you know, look at the internet. There is as much gullibility in the world today as ever. Calls from fake companies in Nigeria and India have replaced calls from, you know, religious gurus. <laughs> it's the same idea, same principle, selling lotion, and people buy it. So, if I told you that God came to me and showed me the way and said that all you've got to do is love God and you'll get into heaven, that's all you've got to do, then fine. It's uh, quite easy to buy into that religion. You don't have to do anything. But otherwise, talking about all this stuff that you now have to keep, it's a tough sell. It's an impossible sell. And no one has ever made that sell in the last 3,000 years because you cannot fabricate mass revelation claims and you therefore won't be able to, to sell an intense 24-7 religion. You make a very powerful argument. You're saying that the idea that was made up by Moses at that time, which would have been known to them as a lie because it contains history about themselves that they never experience, is obviously impossible. It's historically indefensible. Is it possible? Yes, it's possible there are unicorns, but it's historically indefensible. Why should they have accepted something which totally shackles them for the rest of their life? Why sign my entire life away and I'm not going to risk my life for something that I know is a fraud? And you, the proposer of this theory, will have to prove that people would do something which history and philosophy tells me they don't. I don't have the problem. You have to come up with a very, very good answer. Maybe Moses was just a very, very charismatic leader. I mean, I mean, looking through history, you see how these leaders and dictators, they, they right. could make the masses do remarkable things. You mean Moses, the one the Bible says has a speech impediment so that he needed his brother Aaron to speak for him? That Moses. That one. Yeah, and then there's another problem, the next generation. 
they know they're living a lie because everybody knows the whole thing is a lie. Passing on this type of lie to the next generation would never happen and doesn't happen, especially in a world where every other individual is worshipping a multiplicity of gods. It would have died out or split into multiple religions in the second generation. So maybe they weren't just softies. Maybe they were all extremists who bought into it and indoctrinated their children with it. Yeah, so Moses found a bunch of insane people. A lot of them. Right, and they were prepared to adopt an utterly insane claim, all of them. Maybe. Right, okay. (laughs) Have you ever come across an extremist local cult with a million insane adherents and ever seen them last into the next generation when they have 613 commandments? And have you ever seen a cult where the cult leader doesn't possess absolute power? Right? But I haven't finished yet. Beyond all that I have said, there are even more issues with this invented religion. One of the questions to figure out is that he's got a damn good predictive rate. Meaning, now that we've agreed that this Bible is a fake, he makes claims in it which somehow thousands of years later are still true. He says very clearly that you will go into exile, which in the ancient world was almost unheard of. I mean, if you look at the conquests of the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Greeks or the Romans uh, over, you know, one and a half thousand period of time, when did an invading nation take their conquered people into exile? They might have assimilated them into their host culture, but they didn't move them. They left them there. They taxed them. They enslaved them. They didn't schlep them to the other end of the world with primitive methods of transport. The idea of going into exile. Who did the Greeks take into exile? Who who did they move? Moving a whole country, a whole population from one place to another. You want their agriculture. You want their wisdom. But the Torah says you will be taken into exile, which is a, a nutty prediction if you're inventing a story. And you couldn't have got it from the world around you because it isn't happening. Second problem is that it says in this invented Bible that while you're in exile, you'll be few in number. Now, if you compare the number of Jewish people 2,000 years ago, there were, I mean, somewhere between 3 and 10 million Jews. Difficult to know exactly. Uh, These are figures given by sort of Roman historians. The Chinese, meanwhile, are 30 million. Today, there are 1.5 billion Chinese and still only 14 million Jews. We've basically not grown in 2,000 years unlike the Chinese. So to predict that A, you're going to go into exile is insane. That B, you'll be few in number is equally unlikely, shall we say. And then to top it all, there's a third prediction. You're going to be scattered around the world. Well, I never thought of this. If you've ever received an appeal from the World Wildlife Fund, it will be worded as follows. There are only 350 Serbian tigers left in the world. In order to make sure that we don't lose this valuable species, we will relocate them all into one location and take great care of them. Because small numbers either grow somehow or they die. But we didn't. And to predict that 2,000 years before it happens is practically impossible. So as I said, this idea of Moses is not taught in universities because even for sort of the heretical academics out there, this would be an absurd theory. Maybe people at the time were so unsophisticated that they would accept absolutely anything at face value. People were extremely primitive thousands of years ago 
And I, I assume you're basing this on uh, research because, <laughs> uh, you know, if you've watched lots of films that portray these people walking around in loincloths and, and grunting. Yeah, the Jungle Book, isn't that right? right? Yes. It, it's true that they were not knowledgeable in the science of today. That's no reason to assume they were uncritical in accepting other opinions. But you know something? I'm feeling generous. I'm prepared to go along with your stereotypical image of what people were like 3,000 years ago based on your completely un unscientific proofs for it. No problem. <laughs> this is almost the same question as maybe they were all insane. Okay, so this is... Let, let, let's restate your question. Maybe back then... If you said boo to them, they'd bow down and worship you. People were so unsophisticated, were so unable to verify data, and in fact weren't even schooled in verifying data, that they took on board anything you said as being true, especially because they had so little understanding of natural phenomena that you could use that to your advantage. You'd produce fire, they would think you were the fire god, and therefore anybody could come and sell them the proverbial Brooklyn Bridge. Exactly. Thanks for yes. clarifying my question. Except it's funny that with all these religions starting up back then, no one else came up with this very easily packaged idea, which explained how very easy it was to sell it. Why did nobody else do it? In fact, the only people who accepted this lotion without any complaint or argument were the Jews. Because, of course, it's well known. The Jews always accept other people's opinions very easily. Jews are never argumentative or stubborn. They are the most compliant people when it comes to accepting opinions, right? Yeah, definitely. Yes, that's how the church viewed them through the Middle Ages and beyond. That's how the Torah writes about them. And that's how, in the 21st century, the world talks about them as the most non-opinionated people. Those are the Jews, yeah? Not. And funnily enough, they were the only ones who accepted all this baloney. Yeah. Okay, moving on. I'll keep quiet. Right. Fred scenario. Past theory. If you were to say to me that a thousand years ago, an ancestor of mine owned uh, a shop in Tripoli, I have absolutely no way of assessing whether this is true or not. And therefore, the way a person got away with the Sinai claim was by saying that 500 years ago, guys, a document was given to your ancestors of the Jewish people. And it ended up being totally forgotten. But I have the only surviving copy here. I found it in my basement. And now, because two and a half thousand years ago, people were still living in ancient times and they didn't have the archaeological means to evaluate the evidence, so they accepted it. This is what's taught in university. So how are they being taught? Meaning, why was it done? What was the motivation behind it? In other it? words, why would somebody do this 500 years the, after uh, the event? What, why would they invent this? Yeah. So the idea is a group of people, uh, it could be the priests, it could be the rulers, they wanted to solidify their rule over the people. They wanted to make their nation, their religion, more of a religion. Let's face it, you know, how did ancient Rome come into being? How did ancient Greece come into being? A load of legends, uh, Romulus and Remus and the wolf dogs, and they brought up this child. Do we know if it's true or not? No way. No way of knowing. And eventually there was a city-state and a larger population and an army and, and, and a conquering army, and then you've got Rome. Now, most of these details are utterly unverifiable. So you've got the Jewish people, and they're jealous. 
everybody else has got their legends. We want our history because what it does is it makes the people much more solidified. If they've got their own background, their own history, and especially, you know, if it's exciting and miraculous and it contains a book that that God spoke to us, we're much more likely to stick together because now we've got national pride. It makes us easier to entice to go to war against other nations. If we've got common ancestry and common goals, we're going to go for it. And that's why, you know, I mean, over the ages, that's why people did this in, in, in many different religions, in many different places in the world. The problem is as before. 500 years later, I'm not simply telling you a story from the past. I would have to tell you that 500 years ago, God appeared on Mount Sinai to all of our ancestors. I'm speaking to 100 people, 1,000 people, whoever I'm speaking to, and told them to be circumcised, told them to keep Shabbos, told them to stop eating most animals, not to cut their beards. And that's a problem because I'm talking to this hundred or thousand people and not one single one of the people in this room has ever heard the faintest memory of this. Not one single person has spoken to their parents or grandparents who have memory of this. Of course they haven't because I just invented it yesterday night. I wrote it. It's the, you know, it's the eighth volume of Harry Potter. <laughs> no one's ever heard of it or seen it except on blogs. It doesn't exist. And it's a pretty wow event. It's a difficult thing to have public amnesia about. So forget the fact that of the thousand people I'm speaking to, no one's going to be circumcised and that none of them have kept ever Shabbos in their life. They've never even heard of Shabbos. The most irreligious Jew on this planet would be streets ahead of them. In other words, the entire religion has been wiped out, not just the practice of it, any memory that it ever existed. I am single-handedly resurrecting this religion, yet I claim that all of your ancestors knew about this book, and we're talking about a living religion, a religion that's all-encompassing. The way Rabbi Gottlieb puts it, if you tell me that yesterday I borrowed a pen from you and I don't remember this, could I accept what you're saying as being true? Yeah, sure. It's not such an important event. I could have forgotten that I borrowed your pen. But suppose you tell me that yesterday you saw me win £10,000 from a lottery ticket and I don't remember this at all. Will I accept it as true? I'm going to say this event is very uncommon. It would have a significant impact on me. You have got to be making a mistake. Now, maybe you could explain that the reason I don't remember the event is because last night I had a head injury or I had a traumatic experience. And then maybe I can accept your story, even though I don't remember it. But your explanation for my loss of memory would have to be, uh, you know, likely or provable. Suppose instead, let's make it larger, you tell me that my great-great-grandfather was made supreme commander of the Polish army, but no one in my family has any memory or record of this. Will I accept it? It's very unlikely. If an event is both rare and important, it becomes unforgettable, or pretty unforgettable. It would be passed down, and therefore, unless you can explain how this important memory was lost, I will not believe you. 
of course, as opposed to if it's, it's an unimportant memory, you know, I don't know, my great great grandfather was a tailor, right? Or it's irrelevant to my personal life, or it's unverifiable because there are no witnesses. My ancestor once killed a bear in the forest, and he was the only one there. Maybe. And now let's expand it even further to a national level, which affects even more people. If I tell you that in the 13th century, 70% of the population of France made a national pilgrimage to Rome, but this event is completely absent from any history books and no one remembers it. So as before, my response will be a past event that is important in the history of a nation will be recorded. If we have no memory or record of it, we will not believe it. It's called basically a national unforgettable. If somebody wants to mislead us about our memory, they have to choose a forgettable one unless they can explain why the memory was lost. But in the case of national memory, it's very hard to imagine conditions that would wipe out the memory of an entire nation. I mean, you know, think about all the repressions in Russian times, Stalin's times. You can't totally wipe out memory. History has shown that even systematic, long-term government effort to falsify historical records, or when there were, I don't know, very long-lasting wars, it doesn't accomplish this. So it needs to be historically likely. So let's take this to Mount Sinai. What if there had never been an encounter at Sinai? And someone came two and a half thousand years ago and told the Jews, hundreds of years ago, so 3,000 years ago, all your ancestors stood at a mountain they witnessed the national revelation. They saw a fire on top of a mountain. They heard a voice which they understood was from God that gave them many rules and commandments. And this revelation was the beginning of a new religion. It radically changed the life of the, of the whole nation, its values, its leadership, its priorities. If it never happened, what would the Jews have said two and a half thousand years ago to such an account? They would have said, what, well, you expect us to believe this? Don't you think we'd remember something that rare and that important in the history of our nation? Our whole national life would show it. We'd have holidays to celebrate the event and a history of, of uh, national decisions of implementing the new rules. A, 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 any national miraculous event isn't just an event. It is celebrated by people every year. There's speeches, memorials, commemoration. And here, total silence. Nothing. Getting a nation to adopt an invented national unforgettable is practically impossible. A full story of national revelation that creates a national religion will not be believed. And this belief in the national revelation at Sinai has been held by the Jewish nation for thousands of years. We know that. Where did that relief belief come from? Were we duped? And therefore, here is your challenge. Either find me a reasonable explanation for why there is a wide-held belief in a national unforgettable event that didn't actually happen, or you have to accept the event as real. Such a story can't be invented, and therefore we have good reason to accept it as being true. If it weren't true, it wouldn't be believed unless you can provide solid reasoning for total amnesia. Now, I know I've sort of made this point over and over in the last five minutes, but it's important. Oh, and by the way, you would also have to deal with the fact that in the Torah, there is a verse that says, it will never be forgotten. Really, that's a rather embarrassing verse when not just part, but all of it 
was forgotten. Once again, you're the one that needs to explain yourself, not me. And astonishingly, in university, not only do they teach this Fred theory, you can get a PhD in it, but they teach it as having happened multiple times in order to give us the document that we have today, which we'll discuss next week. That Jews, who were the most stiff-necked, suspicious, scholarly, unyielding people, once actually were the most superstitious, stupid, gullible, just conveniently in those gaps of time. Now, though, I will leave you with the biggest question on the Fred theory. And that is, who is Fred? You know, he has got to have lived at some stage during a 1,300-year period. Actually, it's much shorter than that. It's probably 700 years. What is his name? Where is his story in Tanakh? I mean, you could say he's any of the biblical famous figures. You could say he's Elio or Shmuel Anovi or... Okay, so the problem is as follows. He was the saviour of Judaism. The religion had been completely forgotten and he single-handedly resurrected it. It was completely lost. He is the second most important Jew in history after Moses. Yet there is not one word in Tanakh about this achievement. And there are no religions out there where the founder or the resurrector of it is unknown, except this one. Maybe that's because this religion never was resurrected. Hmm? <laughs> wow, Rabbi Hirsch, that is uh, many important points you've made. And uh, I think I'm actually going to be listening to this podcast again. It might be the first that I'm doing a revision on because it's it really is required. I mean, you said the Christian one is required listening for every Jew. Yeah, if this isn't, you know, what is? I have to tell you that this took me at least 70 hours to put together. I believe that. But once it's there... It's just ridiculous. Now, obviously, your fans would say that if you yourself believe in all of this and you've destroyed every mythical legend in the last 80 episodes, uh -huh, that's right. reason good yeah. enough. Uh -huh, right. No, no, no. No, this they have to do for themselves. And next week, we will deal with all the nagging questions that will arise from this podcast, including biblical criticism, archaeological questions, and all the scenarios that you're going to dream up between now and then of the base on the basis of... But maybe... So I'm just going to correct you, Rabbi Hirsch, it's not next week. It's going to be in a couple of days. Yes, that's true. Because yes. we, uh, we can't leave people with these no. questions. So no. if you can all just hang fire on all the obvious questions that have arisen from now, I'm sure you have many. Wait a couple of days and Rabbi Hirsch will be answering all of them anyway. And of course, yes, just in case he hasn't, we are always available at podcasts at jle.org.uk. Thank you very much, Rabbi Hirsch.